This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. We've had a wonderful day together. Uh, Excellent singing. Have enjoyed that very much and feel very uplifted spiritually. Wonderful meal together. I can remember as a younger man uh, preaching and thinking, you know, after a a nice Sunday lunch together and then Sunday afternoon service, what a challenge it was to keep everybody awake after having such a big meal. And now that I'm 58 years old, it's a challenge to keep me awake. (laughs) So if I fall asleep up here, y'all just leave me alone. (laughs) We'll be all right. I think we can hang in there a little longer. We're going to talk to you a little bit about how Christ organizes church. This is an assemblage of material from different studies and different sermons that the idea in my mind was to pull together some things to take up this idea of checks and balances that we sort of touched on a little bit this morning and really zero in on that and think about the checks and the balances. There's a lot of information in this afternoon's study about evangelists and where they fit in the Lord's plan for how he organized his church. And there's a lot of information about elders. Now, we'll just briefly mention deacons and bring that in at the very end. But a lot of the discussion there is about that and a sense of of harmony and togetherness and mutual accountability in, in how those offices all work together in the picture that the Lord has for how his church should operate. And I hope that as we talk about these things that it will sort of lay a foundation to help you think as a congregation make decisions about where you want to go with this because Mike and I want you all to take time and think about this and make sure what you want to do or don't want to do and uh, you, you know we're leaving you things to kind of stew on for a little bit and and then you can you know get with us later and maybe uh, this afternoon's study will help give some background for that. And if there's to be future teaching done, some of the things that we talk about this afternoon will be foundational for talking about the work of elders, the qualifications to a certain extent of elders, and certainly the work and the qualifications of deacons. So there's a lot of important information that, uh, related to what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Now, in Matthew 23, verse 9 through 12, Christ and... Not his last sermon, but one of his later discourses uh, near the end of his life here on earth said, Do not call anyone on your earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we understand that as Christ talks about fathers and teachers here, he's talking about in a, in a spiritual sense bestowing an inordinate amount of honor on somebody and giving them more religious authority or honor than what is appropriate. And he's explaining, I don't want it to be like that. And he was saying that in a setting where there were certain religious you know, leaders and teachers that had more honor and more influence than what was really appropriate within God's plan for what he wanted his people to be. So against that backdrop and to some of those people, Jesus is teaching here what he didn't want it to look like in his church. And so along these lines, he brings in the idea of 
The greatest person among you is going to be your servant. The one who humbles himself, that's the one who will be exalted. And this shows us an important thing. When you go back and study the kings of Israel and their very storied history, the good kings, the bad kings, and the ones that were somewhere on that scale in the middle, the best ones were the humble ones. When you think about your experiences in daily life and dealing with the different leaders that you face, we prayed together tonight about us all having some unique leadership role in life that we feel in the family or wherever, and there are leaders all around us, and the ones that are really good at it are the ones that are humble. The road to greatness. The road to greatness is traveled on your knees. An humbling servitude and a self-emptying, God-honoring, it's all about him. And so Jesus is laying out a foundation of what it takes to be that real difference maker in his kingdom. And it's not about the honor seekers, okay? It's about the humble seekers of his honor. All right, so let's think about those things. We're going to look at two perspectives of a view of the church and this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 will help us to see those perspectives. He said, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now I want to ask you to notice some things here. He addressed the church, the Lord's church, in two different perspectives. He addressed the congregation there at Corinth to the church of God, which is at Corinth. But then in addition to that, he said, with all that in every place call on his name. So the letter to the Corinthians wasn't just a letter to the Corinthians. It was a letter to all congregations. From that perspective, we could, above Corinth or Corinthians there in your Bible, you could write Alma. <laughs> because it's written to everybody. This is our epistle. But it was Philippi's epistle. It was for the churches of Galatia. It was for the saints at Jerusalem and both Antiochs. Antioch of Pisidia and Antioch in Syria, both of those guys. It was for the saints at Rome and on and on and on. The church in Babylon, everybody. That's for everybody. So that's the two perspectives. On the one hand, he sees a local congregation the church at Corinth. And on the other hand, he sees all congregations everywhere, all that in every place call on the Lord's name. In Hebrews 12 and 23, we find interesting language that describes the Lord's church. He said, To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. <clears throat> There's a lot of, this text is rich. There's a lot of stuff in the verses before and after it. I'd love to take time to talk about all of that, but that's beyond our purpose. So I'm going to exercise some discipline here and restrict the discussion to notice how he addressed his, his church. He talked about the general assembly. That sounds to me a lot like all that in every place call on his name. Is that Corinth? Yes, it is. But it's everybody else too. You see, that's the universal perspective of the Lord's church, that he sees the church in that universal sense, but he also sees it in that congregational sense. See how he addressed the church of Thessalonica. <coughs> in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1, he said, Paul, Silvanus, 
and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we've got the church, remember, with all that in every place call in his name, the church at Corinth, but we've got these other congregations too, and that includes Thessalonica. So there again we have this local church perspective versus the church universal in perspective. Now, let's talk about offices or an office in the universal church. Okay, I'm an evangelist. Mike is an evangelist. When Mike gets back to Norman, he'll be just as much an evangelist there as he is here. He'll be no less an evangelist there than he is here. He's the same wherever he goes. If he comes up and visits me at South Penn, he'll be an evangelist there. If I go from here to home and I'll be an evangelist there, but when I leave South Penn and go to Norman to visit Mike, I'll be an evangelist anywhere we go. That's what we are. And we're no more or less an evangelist in one place than we are the other because the nature of our office is universal. We read this morning about Timothy here in 2 Timothy 4 and 5 where Paul said, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So the idea of, of the work of an evangelist, his ministry, we believe, is in the church universal. Now this is a child, I realize the text is a little small, but I had to do this to get it to fit. I want to make a comparison here between Paul and Titus and Timothy and Philip. Now at the top of that chart, over on the right, you see Timothy is called an evangelist. There in 2 Timothy 4, which we just read. And we know that Philip is called an evangelist in Acts 21 in verse 8. It's not a term that's used a ton in the New Testament, but it is used. And it, it's actually based on the word angel. It just means good messenger. Or the word angel just means messenger. So the prefix U or EV in, in our language, EU in the Greek language, that just means good. And then angelos is just messenger. So... We're good messengers. We're messengers of the good news. Gospel preachers. Evangelists. Okay? But look at the similarity between the work. Now I made the statement this morning that I believe we find Paul, though he's an apostle, I believe he did an evangelistic work. In Acts 13, he was separated for that work. We find him ordaining elders. We find Titus told to ordain elders. Why did Paul send Timothy the qualifications of an elder? <laughs> He's teaching them what to do to ordain elders. We don't find that about Philip. I'm not saying he didn't. We just don't have record of it, okay? The idea of evangelizing or preaching the gospel. I'm certain that Titus did that. We don't know as much about him as we do Paul, where he preached the gospel. Timothy was told to preach the word. Philip preached Jesus. So you see them being that good messenger. We see these guys separated from a local work. We don't know enough about Titus and his kind of a biographical sketch. We don't know enough to see that about him. But in Acts 13, which we read this morning, we read where Paul's at Antioch. He's just one of the teachers there. You can go back and read that in Acts 13 and 1. He's just one of the boys. But then the Spirit said, separate him and Barnabas. They're going to transition from that work of a local teacher to a different kind of work. And then from that time forward, we find Paul doing a kind of work that Timothy and Titus and Philip did. You know, Paul separated Timothy out. When he went to uh, Acts 16 there, when he went to the area where Timothy lived, he saw Timothy and he said, I want to separate him, see, for the work. So he, he said, I want him to go with me. When Philip, 
Remember, he's one of the guys that was elected to help take care of the hungry widows there in Acts, in Acts 6. <clears throat> if you want to think of him as a deacon, he was a deacon. If, if you see that differently, then he was just serving the church in a particular need there. But then there was this intense persecution against the church, so a lot of disciples scattered. Philip left his local work there at Jerusalem in Acts 8, and he went down to Samaria and began to preach. So we find a separation of him that's a lot like what we found about Paul and Timothy. We find these guys involved in correcting doctrinal problems. For example, Paul to the church at Corinth talked about coming with a rod of correction, you know, to correct some problems they had in their teaching. In Titus 1 and 13, he, he told Titus about some problems they had to the churches at Crete to rebuke them sharply. Sharply to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 1 and 3, he told them, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Now, I don't doubt that Philip did the same, but we don't read that about him. Paul labeled Titus as my partner and fellow helper in 2 Corinthians 8. He labeled Timothy similarly in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. He said, Timothy works the work of the Lord as I also do. As I understand the language there, Paul is basically saying, Timothy and I hold the same office. We do the same work. So I'll look at that and say, Timothy was an evangelist, therefore Paul was an evangelist. And someone says, well, wait a minute, I thought Paul was an apostle. He was. It's really simple. Was Peter an elder? Yes. You read that in 1 Peter 5. We'll read it in just a minute. Was Peter an apostle? Yes. The apostleship was a different thing. And it didn't mean that Peter couldn't be an elder or that Paul couldn't be an evangelist. The apostolic office described the relationship they had in conveying the new covenant message you know, from the Spirit that inspired them with it you know, at the orders of Christ. He talked to them about that work that they would do before he died. And so that relates to that kind of work and the special miracles they did in getting this all started, so to speak. Kind of jump-starting the New Testament, if you want to put it in simple, hyper-simplified terms. But Paul did this work, the same work Titus did, the same work Timothy did. And I'll tell you, the day I read 1 Corinthians 16 and 10, and with that thought in mind, that's when it clicked with me. These guys all held the same office, Okay. So with that in mind, when we read about Paul or Titus or Timothy or Philip, we're reading about that universal office. So what did Paul say about his work? In 2 Corinthians 11 and 28, he's talking about the different problems that he had with perils and persecutions. He said, besides the other things, what comes on me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul had a concern for all the churches. And you can readily observe that in Acts. From the time they sent him out in Acts 13, he's going here and he's going there and he's concerned about these guys and he's concerned about those guys and he's getting to a place and he's stopping and he's writing those a letter. He had concern and care for all those churches, didn't he? The scope of his work was universal. Okay? When we read about the scope of an elder's work, it's different which we'll see shortly. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 8, regarding the authority that's associated with this work, you can see Paul and others exercising authority in the work that they did. We touched on that this morning. What did he say in 2 Corinthians 10 and 8 about our authority? He shared that work with someone, one of his guys like Timothy and Titus. 
our authority which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction. <clears throat> so here's this sense of balance. Mike and I have the authority to teach congregations. You guys need to have an eldership that's scriptural and qualified and working. But that's not given to us so we can come in and force our will and be destructive with it. We've got to be humble. If we want to achieve anything, we've got to be humble and serving. We've got to travel that road on our knees, don't we? So we've got to come in humbly and teach the things that we teach in a way that promotes edification, not destruction. You find a similar statement in 2 Corinthians 13 and 10 where he talked about the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. When the Spirit says it once, he means what he said. When he says it twice, we've got to really lean in and pay attention. Okay? This is important. I'll just tell you, it's easy to have an authority that you lose sight of its purpose and it stops being about the purpose and becomes about the power. We cannot let that happen. So we got to have a sense of self-check there, don't we? Something interesting he said in 2 Corinthians 1 and 24 in a limitation of his authority as an evangelist. He says, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. So Paul says to the Corinthian saints, we don't have dominion over your faith. What strikes me as interesting about that phrase, that translates the same Greek word that Jesus used in Luke 22 and 25 when he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And he goes on to say, I don't want you guys to be like this. I don't want it to be so among you. So exercise lordship over and have dominion over, that's the same word. So Paul is saying, we're remembering in the way we carry out our offices what Jesus said about he didn't want his church run like Gentile authorities run Gentile kingdoms. So whatever authority people have in the church, they're not to rule like governmental rulers where it's a forced compulsion type rule. We don't bear dominion over. And I, I find, find that interesting that what Christ is confessing to the Corinthians about his authority that he's trying to use to help them fix their problems, that he's careful to honor the limits on his authority that Jesus taught his disciples during his personal ministry. Here's another limit. You find Paul going to Jerusalem to labor in Acts 21, and here's the elders talking to Paul, therefore do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow and then they go on and talk to Paul about taking a certain kind of vow and going to the temple and going through this ritual. So what happens? Paul goes to Jerusalem and he has to submit to what those elders say. They have authority over the flock at Jerusalem. And so while he's working at Jerusalem, he doesn't submit to the direction of the authorities of Ephesus. They direct matters pertaining to Ephesus. He submits to the authority of the elders at Jerusalem. 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 and 20. Now swing it the other way and see the checks and the balances. Here's Paul telling Timothy about holding elders responsible for their work. He said, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I mean, sometimes people get mad at leaders and sometimes it's not for good reasons. And so you've got somebody that gets mad at an elder and they come and want to tattle to somebody so they come and tell an evangelist. You know what those guys did? Our response needs to at some point get to the idea of 
Okay, let's have the second or third witness. Because if we don't have one, I can't receive this. I've got to act as though you didn't say anything. That's pretty disarming. Because what that does is that helps whittle down personal agendas. It really helps pull that down, see? So, number one, we don't even carelessly receive an accusation. Then when you get one that you know is true, what did he say to do in verse 20? Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. The rest also may fear. So if there is an accusation, there is a sin, and there's a big problem, and it's got to be dealt with, the evangelist has got to submit to the elder, but he can also turn and hold that elder responsible to do the right thing. Nobody in their right mind wants to play that role in verse 20. If I'm going to go to this guy that's a shepherd of the flock and, you know, the witnesses are against him and it says he's got this sin problem and I've got to go chastise him about that. Nobody in their right mind wants to do that. So if it gets to the point where a fella is willing to go and do that, then you become convicted in your heart that that's what that person needs. So you've got to do something that's a, a, a task that is great in its difficulty and the road to greatness is travel on your knees. So you go in humility with hat in hand. You see how that works? And you make that chastisement an humble appeal, don't you? You'd treat them as fathers, as Paul elsewhere taught Timothy. And so there's a mutual sense of checks and balances. We go to a congregation that has elders, we submit to those elders. But there's a mutual accountability there to make sure that everything's according to Hoyle. Now let's look at the local offices. We've talked about the universal office, the fact that wherever we go, we're evangelists, no more, no less in one place than another place. Now look at uh, the Philippian example that we considered this morning. Philippians 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So you've got congregations that are part of the General Assembly. You've got all in every place, you see, and then you've got the church over here at Ephesus, and you've got the church at Philippi. And what do we have in those congregations? We've got bishops, deacons, and members. And those are local offices. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> there are elders at, at Norman that oversee the functions of that congregation. One of those guys could come here. You'd love to visit with them. They're great men. They're not elders here. And they don't wield the same authority and influence here that they do in their home congregation. There are elders at South Penn where I attend or when I'm home. Those guys are great men and they're great elders, but they're not elders of this flock. So wherever I go, I'm an evangelist, but it's not the same for them. You see the difference now between that universal and that local and why that's an important distinction? And that boils down to what we've called historically the autonomy of the church each congregation being self-governing, okay? So let's look at that a little more. 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter teaches us a lot here. He tells us that he's an elder. He says, I'm a fellow elder. He tells us here that the elders is an eldership. It's not just one guy that's the chief of a congregation, but it's a group of men because the word that's translated fellow elder meant Peter served alongside others who also served as elders. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse uh, 14, Paul told uh, Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. King James says presbytery. 
And that means a board of elders. So you've got elders or fellow elder and eldership. You've got terminology that says this is a plurality of guys in a congregation. We're not going in somewhere to just set up one lone leader. We're going in to set up an eldership. Okay? 1 Peter 5 and 2, now you're shepherding the flock that you're a part of, as we've talked about, so there's that autonomy. You've got the different congregations and you've got elders over their congregations and they have oversight of the flock that they are a part of, not over different flocks. Now, let's look at the big picture. In the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, all that in every place call on his name, you've got these different congregations where when they reach that stage of spiritual maturity that they have elders, you've got elders and they're overseeing their flock. And then as a universal office, you've got guys like Mike and I. And our authority is not over a single flock that we're a part of. Ours is care of all the churches, as we've read about in Scripture. That's what Paul said that characterized his work. And you can see that demonstrated in Acts. Not just for Paul, but you can see it with Timothy and his example in the book of Acts. And bits and pieces we read about those guys in the epistles. You see that in Titus. In Titus chapter 1, he's at Crete, and what is he? Is he got authority over a local flock? No, he's concerned about setting in order things in all the congregations that are there. You see, the scope of his work as an evangelist, the scope of that office is really different. So understand, an evangelist is not an employee of a particular congregation. He's a person who has this universal church type responsibility, but elders' authority is limited to the flock that they are a part of. Now let's look at some of the terminology. In 1 Peter 5, he told them to shepherd the flock of God. Okay? 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. Ephesians 4, we read there this morning about in the church these different offices and some pastors and teachers. And we talked about those two words being the form, a different form of the same word. Shepherd is the verb and pastor is, is the noun. So he's telling them to pastor the flock or he's saying some shepherds and teachers. All right, so those words are the same. They describe the same office or the same work. Now look at this word overseer where he said, where you serve as overseers. That's the word bishop. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers here in Acts 20 and verse 28. And they're told to shepherd the church. That's the same word. In Titus 1, he said a bishop must be blameless. And that comes on the heels of Paul saying, ordain elders. And here's the qualifications. Why are these qualifications here? Because a bishop must be blameless. So bishop is used interchangeably with elder. So if you've got an eldership, you've got a bishopric. You've got guys that are bishops. You've got guys that are pastors. You've got guys that are shepherds. There are different names that describe different dimensions of their work or their obligations. The overseers, the bishops, that's all the same. Those are all the same or akin terms, uh, verb or noun forms of the same word. When you look in Titus 1, verse 5 through 7, he said you're there to appoint elders, and then he called those elders bishops, as we've talked about. So let's put that on a chart. helps me to visualize. Hope it helps you. In 1 Peter 5, he says, guys, I'm talking to the elders, and I'm also a co-elder. You shepherd the church, and you've been made overseers. You've been made bishops, so pastor those churches. All right. So you've got those three terms, elder, bishop, shepherd. You go to Titus 1, you find the term elder and the term bishop. 
in the same context describing the same work. You go to Philippians 1, you find the bishops there in the church at Philippi. You go to Ephesians 4, you find the pastor tying to the word shepherd. You go to 1 Timothy 4, you've got the eldership tying to that co-elder concept. We talk, All of these scriptures are talking about the same office or the same position. And then Acts 20, verse 17, they're called elder. Verse 28, they're told to shepherd and they're called overseers. So all these scriptures we can see are all titled by the same office. And sometimes there's confusion in different religious groups because they don't understand that's all the same office or the same work. And, and there are qualifications that a person must meet or qualities that they must possess in order to be appointed to that office. Okay? So you understand that. Now let's move on. Let's talk about some passages that relate to their shepherding work. Hebrews 13, verse 7 and verse 17. Interesting passage. He says, remember those who rule over you and have, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now let's stop for a minute before we read verse 17. He says, I want you to remember those who rule over you. Who would that be? Well, it sounds like elders, doesn't it? That makes pretty good sense. Word that's translated rule there is a different word than, than the word that uses the rulership of an elder when you read like in 1 Peter 5. It's not the word oversee, but same idea. I've got a house and I've got a domicile. Just because I use the word domicile and the word house in the same description, that doesn't mean it's two different buildings. It's still the same place. It's just different terms that describe the same thing. And I believe that's what's happening here. Now what did these guys do? They spoke in the word. Shepherds are not figureheads that sit in a boardroom and make decisions regarding someone else's work as the public teacher. They're involved in speaking the word, aren't they? Look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you. Same word. And be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Who could he be talking about here if he's not talking about shepherds of a local flock? There's no office in the New Testament that fits this description like the eldership. And so I look at that and I'm inclined to think, hey, that's elders. We'll keep building that case. So you've got the rule over you. Go to 1 Thessalonians verse 12 and, uh, 5, verse 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 13. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Them getting along with each other was tied to their proper respect for their eldership. You say, how do you know that's elders? Well, let's dig a little. Who else is over you in the Lord? Who else do we find in scriptures tasked with the job of admonishing the flock? Could that be the guys who spoke unto you the word of the Lord? In Hebrews, you see the commonality there? That word that's translated esteem, same as the word rule in Hebrews 13, it's a term that relates to honor that's bestowed upon that office. And we're going to see something else about that word over, whereas they're said to be over you in the Lord. Let's look at that. 1 Timothy 5 and 17, he said, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That word rule 
1 Timothy 3 and verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Rule and take care are two totally different words, but they're describing the same concept. You can see that. They're laid parallel to one another. And it's about an elder's ability to have authority in the flock. Those that are over you in the Lord, 1, Timothy 5, or 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, that word over is the same as the word rule in those other two passages. So in 1, Timothy 5, or 1 Thessalonians 5, excuse me, he used a word that's elsewhere used to describe the elder's authority in the local flock. And then he used another word, translated esteem, that Hebrews uses to describe elder's authority in the flock. And when you blend all those together, you've got a picture of elders leading, having authority, of them teaching, and of them leading by example, which, oh, by the way, folds in just perfectly with what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I put it on a chart to help us visualize. I even color-coded it. The words that are used in these different passages we've been studying this afternoon that relate to the idea of leadership or authority, they're in the green segment of the chart up top. Rule, esteemed, over, oversee, bishop, overseer, rule. All those words. And I've got them in columns where they line up where it's the same word or a variant form of the same Greek word. Then you get into the blue segment, that's about their teaching. You look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, they're to be apt to teach. And that relates to them in Titus 1, exhorting and convicting the gainsayer. And you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, he said they admonish you. You go to Hebrews 13, they have spoken to you the word of the God. So you can see it's all talking about the same work. Then you get into the yellow section, that's where they're leading by example. He said, whose faith follow. You can see the end of that. So you follow their example. What did he say in 1 Peter 5? He said there to be examples to the flock. Do they lead by example? Yes. They also have a real authority that we're to respect. And they lead by teaching. How can you lead a congregation if you never teach them? The world sometimes has ideas of these offices that are not realistic and consistent with what's taught in Scripture. Elders are to be a teaching eldership. Now, what about the shepherding work? Well, we've read where they're called shepherds or where they're told to shepherd. And what did he say in Hebrews 13? Now, I've said, I think that's about elders. And here we find them watching for your souls. That sounds a lot like a shepherd to me. So I hope sharing that chart, that information kind of helps you see the commonality between all these passages being different ways of describing this same office. That is a helpful foundation for understanding the nature of an elder's work, okay? I hope you can see why that seems important. Now, let's read just briefly about the deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through 13. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Let these first, also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, Faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children, their own houses well. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay. So he describes the qualities that a person must possess to, to be appointed as a deacon. And he describes their work. He says... 
those who serve well as deacons. After saying, let them uh, be tested, he said, let them serve as deacons. Now sometimes I've heard people say, well, the Bible never really specifies what a deacon's work is. And my answer to that is, yes, he does. He did when he said, let them serve as deacons. That all translates a word that means they're servants. Well, in what way do they serve the, the, the local flock of which they are a part? Well, what way does that flock need to be served? Now, this is something that, Lord willing, can be studied in greater detail in the future. But for now, we'll just throw this out. Does the church need help in the area of teaching and spiritual edification? We know elders are tasked with that. If a deacon is gifted to be able to serve in that capacity, why couldn't he do that? You know, there's some guys that are really good at bean counting, being accountant type work, and, and tracking the treasury and tracking expenses and all that sort of thing. If there's a guy that's a deacon that's gifted at that, why can't that be how he serves? Some guys are really good handymen. Okay? If that's what a guy can do, why can't that be how he serves the church? Some guys are just really good at hospital visits. I try to make them. I like to do that. I feel it's important. But I also feel like that is a long ways from being my strength. Okay? Don't ask my wife's stories about that because they're all funny, all the ones she's has. It's, it's hard for me to make that smooth, you know. Some people, they're just good at that stuff. So if you've got a deacon that's good, why can't that be how he serves? We need to understand that, you know, I used to hear the elders are over the spiritual matters and deacons are over the physical matters. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches what it teaches about elders, and we've touched on that a little this afternoon. The Bible teaches that deacons are servants. And they serve the church in whatever capacity that their talents allow them to serve the church. And that is a broad spectrum of thing that reaches far beyond keeping the yard mowed. Somebody needs to mow the yard, okay? But there's more. There's a lot of serving that can be done that benefits the church. So think of a deacon's local work in that regard. I hope this study is constructive and helpful for you. I hope you've been edified by the things that we've discussed Again, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together. I hope you see consistency as we go from Scripture to Scripture and try to accumulate this evidence and let it snowball. I hope you see a real consistency that the teaching throughout the New Testament on these things is really consistent. When you see that high level of consistency, you're seeing the beauty and the harmony of the Lord's Word and the Lord's plan as He's revealed in His Word. And that's part of the beauty and the power of how the Lord set up his church. And that's why it's such a beautiful family and such a blessing to be a part of. And I hope you're a part of that this afternoon. I hope you've obeyed the gospel so you can have the joys of being a part of this heavenly family. And that your name is registered in heaven. If you've not done that, we want to help you do that right now. If we can assist you in that, we'd love to do so. If you're a Christian, you need the church's prayer. We Love to help you in that way. Please come while we stand and while we sing. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.